0: if you have your Bibles you can open once again to Ephesians chapter 6 I hope you don't get frustrated with me if you have last week's sermon notes and uh, I said part 2 is coming and now we have a different uh, outline but I find myself changing (laughs) often as I'm Uh, seeking to get through the armor of God here. Today we're going to focus in on verse 11. And we're fundamentally going to ask ourselves who the devil is, if this is the reason why we're to put on the armor of God. And uh, we'll look at his schemes next time. So let's read through verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Father, I pray. That these words from the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit would rest on our hearts, that we would take them seriously, that we would really believe that we live in the world that your word, world tells us we live in. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So for all of us who call South Dakota their home, if I was going to ask as a South Dakota, as a South Dakotan, to other fellow South Dakotans, what is our greatest enemy, I would guess that a lot of us would come up with a similar answer that starts with a W. We would either say the weather or winter. As I listen to us grumble about the weather, by the way, God is sovereign over the weather. That's convicting. (laughs) But we recognize and we respect the weather in South Dakota. Let me give you an example of a time when I failed to do this. About 10 years ago, it was late December, and I still hadn't filled my archery tag. And uh, one of my friends from Minnesota was staying with me. and We got up early in the morning, about an hour before uh, first light, and we just got our hunting clothes on, and we took off and just headed to the tree stand. And so we walk out there, hook our stands on, climb up, and we're sitting there. We got about a half hour before we can really see. And I was noticing that it was a, it it felt extra cold. (laughs) And the sun wasn't even up yet. And I'm thinking about getting down and going back home. And as the sun begins to rise, I look at my bow in my string looks like it's about a half inch thick because there's frost built up on it. And I realized real quickly that we're not going to be hunting on this particular morning. And so we climbed our climbing stands back down the tree and it was so frozen I couldn't even get, we couldn't even get our stands off the tree. And uh, the half mile hike back to the car was one of those hikes where I'm wondering, are we going to make it? My face is burning. I'm trying to cover my eyes. Get back to the car. Turn the car on. 18 below zero. Failed to look at the temperature on that particular morning. Failed to understand the enemy that was seeking to kill me. And in a sense, I did not go out there with the right armor on. I didn't have what it took to survive. It's surprising to me as I look at this text, what I would kind of expect the Apostle Paul to do is say, put on the full armor of God so you can glorify God. Obviously, that's true, but that's not what he says. The reason for putting on the full armor armor of God is because of the enemy that we have. You see that? Someone might say, <laughs> my, bro- my brother just asked me, he said, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, the devil. And he goes, that's depressing. I usually like to preach about Christ. <laughs> and uh, obviously, this text is all about Christ. The fact that we have no strength over the enemy apart from Christ. So look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, not part of it. That's not going to work. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we're asking the question today is, who's the devil? If I'm to put the full armor of God on, we need to ask the question, who the devil is, so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I asked you before we sang, how did you come spiritually? Did you come strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might? Or have you come beaten down? Have you had partial armor on? Have you had any armor on? When we sang the song about the blood, the fountain from Emmanuel's veins that plungers, or that sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains, did you feel like. You needed to hear that? Like, that's what you need? Do you realize how crucial it is for us to come on Sunday mornings together and be strengthened and reminded with one another so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil? You realize what's happening when we come together, right? God is calling us together. We're not coming here for Him because He needs something. He's calling us to remember the covenant made in Jesus' blood that we can be strengthened and stand against the devil's schemes. Because whether you think about it or not, you were schemed against last week. By powers much stronger than you, much wiser than you in and of yourself apart from God. So, when we ask the question, who is the devil? We're asking ourselves the question of who is this spiritual being that goes by so many different names, by Satan. Sometimes he's called Satan, which means adversary, or the devil, the accuser, or the tempter, or Beelzebub, which means the prince of demons, or the enemy, the evil one, the deceiver, the great dragon, the father of lies the murderer, the sinner. These are all titles for the devil. And I want to start with the basics. Because when we think about angels and demons, sometimes we are more influenced either just by Christian tradition, not attached to Scripture, or... The movies. Artwork that depicts the devil with horns in a tail. So what does the Bible tell us about him? The first thing we're going to look at is that he's a spiritual being. He's an angel. In Matthew 25, 41, speaking of judgment day he says then he'll say to those on his left those going to judgment depart from me you cur- you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels for the devil and his angels so we have the devil and we and and he's the prince of demons he's the leader of angels that have rebelled william gouge writes that demons are immaterial invisible they're asexual they're immortal spirits what does it mean they are spirits matthew 8:16 says this that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits. See, that's what they are. They're not like us in that we're material. We're embodied spirits. In Ephesians 6, 12, they're described this way. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, and that word rulers is attached to territories usually, against authorities, same thing, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. There's territory that is controlled by the God of this world, which is another, another title for Satan. There's authorities and there's powers and there's strongholds over this world. And then he says, against spiritual forces of evil. This is how the Bible describes the world we live in. There's a battle going on that we can't see that affects what goes on down here on the earth. And so, the first thing we think of when we think of Satan, we need to understand what kind of being he is. He's created by God, he's not an equal to God. He's a created spiritual being that has rebelled against him. Now, when we think of angels in general, they're usually not seen, they're usually invisible in Colossians 1:16 Paul I think is thinking of these rulers and authorities he says for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth so there's things created in heaven and there's things created on earth visible and invisible see that and then he says whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. You remember the story of Balaam when the Lord opened up uh, his eyes when he's riding on the donkey? In verse 31 it says, the, angel, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn and he bowed down and fell on his face. See, they're invisible unless God makes them visible or whether a demon might decide to make himself visible. We have uh, the example of Elisha that we talked about a few weeks ago when the army was surrounding them and his servants scared to death. And Elisha, Praise one of the most merciful prayers. He he says, Master, what are we to do? What are we to do? We're going to die. I love this. He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please. Open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Usually they're invisible. God may make them visible, but this is the reality that we live in. This is the world that we live in. Just think practically, parents. This is the world. You're not just raising your kids to be good citizens. You realize that? You're not just raising them to be Republicans, to give to the community. Do you know what kind of world you're raising your children in? It's a spiritual world. And there's a battle for the souls of our children. One more, Second Corinthians eleven 14. We're told, he, Paul's speaking about false teachers, and, he's, and what he says is they disguise themselves, and he says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise of his servants also that they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. And so when Satan is referred to, he's referred to as one that disguises himself. He doesn't usually come as this terrifying image, but he comes looking like righteousness, looking to deceive looking to veil himself. When they do reveal themselves, when angels reveal themselves in the Bible, usually they just look like men. Genesis 18, 1 and 2. um, We read, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes, and behold, he looked. Three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent of the door to meet them and bow himself down to the earth. Remember when the angels came to meet Lot and the homosexual men in the town wanted to sleep with them? When the angels revealed themselves, they revealed themselves in an image like men. Usually they're invisible. Remember the Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. You might just think it's another person. So misconceptions about angels, which would lead to misconceptions about the devil. The Bible gives no indication that angels ever appeared in female form. All right, so most of the angel paintings you see are often they're a winged female. And it might surprise you that the Bible never says angels are winged except for two exceptions speaking of cherubim and seraphim and we know that there's many more spiritual beings other than cherubim and seraphim so often we just think of like there's there's angels and demons and the demons look like this and the angels look like that and it's real simple but the bible actually describes a multiplicity of spiritual creatures and beings, the cherubim and seraphim around the throne of God, worshiping, for example. And then you have the archangel. So there's hierarchy in angels. You have Michael, the archangel, that battles against Satan over Moses' body. That all happened in the invisible realm. So when we think of these spiritual beings, one of the questions we need to ask is, what are their capacities and powers? What we can learn from the scripture is they're personal beings. They can be interacted with. They have affections. They have a will. They have supernatural knowledge beyond what humans. Have, but that supernatural knowledge has its limits. They know much, but they're not omniscient like God. Consider Jesus' words in Matthew 24 36. But concerning the day and hour, speaking of the end, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun but the father only so when jesus says not even the angels in heaven what he's saying is is they know so much more than you know and what you can imagine knowing apart from christ in 1 peter 1:12 We read, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. The things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. So the prophets are prophesying of Christ. The disciples have just experienced the presence of Christ, the Messiah. And Peter says, the angels are watching in awe. And here's what you need to realize. The angels grow in their intelligence, and demons grow in their intelligence by studying mankind. They've been there since the beginning. Do you realize the ones scheming against you, the beings that are scheming against you, have been watching the weakness of the human flesh for thousands of years, probably particular, malevolent spiritual beings have been studying you and knowing your weaknesses, knowing when you're most likely to fall and knowing how to attack you and what lie to put in your ear. And some say, well, because angels aren't Omniscient, They can't put something in your mind. Well, Satan put something in the heart of Judas. Those lies that pop into your head that are demonic lies, you might want to attribute to the father of lies rather than just coincidence. You maybe want to quit thinking and believing the lies that are running through your head. As I was reading... One of the systematic theologies on angels and demons, and particularly on demons, he just gave examples. He's like, think of how often, when it makes no sense, maybe you're worshiping in church and the most wicked thought just comes to your mind, just in a moment. And the second it comes to your mind, you then think, now the accuser points his finger right in your face. Look at you. You really think you're a saint? You're a fake. You can't take no joy in this grace. It's not you. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, sometimes we can find ourselves meddling in sin and can see how you get to a certain point. Our flesh can sin just on its own. That's true. But do you understand? Are you able to discern the schemes of the devil, the lies that are his? How many young people are hurting themselves, cutting themselves, hating themselves, hearing voices saying, destroy yourself? Where do you think that comes from? You need to know where it comes from And you need to know where to get armor. Because you don't get to live a neutral day in this world. Do you realize that? You never just get to live in a world without spiritual things going on. They have intelligence. They're moral creatures. I have a bunch of verses to show they're intelligent, but I trust that You know some of them. The Bible presents them as moral creatures. The question comes up is, are they created in the image of God? When we think of what does it mean to be in the image of God as human beings, we might point to things like we're moral creatures. We think and we act and... uh, We create things, and we rule over things. And someone might say, well, the angels do all those things, and so they're created in the image of God. But what we have to say, and I just say this in humility, in that good people differ on whether angels are created in the image of God or not, but the Bible never specifically tells us, in my opinion, that they are. Some will argue that in Genesis 1, when when he says, let us make God in our image, that God is speaking to angels when he's saying that. Let us make man in our image rather than the more traditional view, which is that's the Trinity. And the reason why I lean towards they're not created in the image of God is because when you think of the image of God, it's not all about attributes and capacities. We can understand why a cow isn't creating the image of God. The cow doesn't have a soul, they're amoral. They're never asking the question about the purpose of life like we are. But there's more to being created in the image of God than just capacities and attributes. But it also includes a status and a role. And the status and the role that the Bible says human beings have is over top of creation all the other things made, man is to rule for God as a representation of God on earth. Listen to Hebrews 1.13 speak of angels. He says, And to which of the angels, as he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Jesus didn't come to die for angels. And the role God put them in is different than the role he has put man in. And he says, are they not all spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who shall inherit the kingdom of God? I think here you can see the temptation of the fall of Satan and his demons. They are much more glorious beings than we are. Much more glorious beings than we are. Much more intelligent than we are. And God has decided to make them servants of us created out of the dirt That might not seem right to some of them. Some of them maybe want to step out of their position, positions of authority that God has given to them. So we could talk more about that, but as far as this morning, that's all we'll say about them, I think, not being in the image of God, though we share many capacities and attributes. They're moral creatures. Some are are described as holy. Mark 8, 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And also... Obviously, some are fallen, which brings us to point two. There's a lot more you could say about the type of created being Satan is. But let's suffice it at this point to say he is the prince of what we might call the fallen angels or the angels that have rebelled against their specific authority that God has given them. All right. Satan is fallen. Luke 10:18 tells us so much. Jesus said to them, "This is after seven, sending out the 72, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven." So Satan fell. There's great debate about what happened when Satan fell? Questions like, when did he fall? Does the Bible describe his fall or does the Bible not describe the fall of Satan? And good people disagree on that question. One thing we can be sure is God did not decide to bring very much clarity as to all the in-workings of the fall of satan there's some things we can look at and consider but it wasn't important for us to know many details about it some might say well the fall of satan happened long before the garden of eden others might say we see the fall of satan in the garden of eden that here the serpent at this point would be a servant of God who in that moment we see his sin come to fruition. And I guess what I'm saying is is I don't think we can get 100% for sure answers to some of those questions. But let me share with you what some scriptures the Bible does give us. Job 38:4. God is beginning this dialogue with Job after much suffering. Job has been wanting a meeting with God, and he's soon going to put his hand over his mouth and repent in dust and ashes. As he was tempted to believe that God had done, had wronged him in light of his suffering. But here's what he says God asks him a question. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And then he says this verse, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So it seems to be that when the earth is created that the sons of god the angelic beings rejoiced at creation with god so the bible doesn't tell us when he created them exactly but that they were there when the basis of this earth was sunk john 8:44 makes us think that Satan's fall came really quick. He says this. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. He's speaking to the Pharisees that are claiming to be God's sons because they're in the line of Abraham. Jesus counters and says, you're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he says he was a murderer from the beginning. So the one thing we have to see here is it seems like he could just, Jesus could be meaning in the Garden of Eden, if, if Jesus is describing that as the beginning. You see why it's hard to get clarity, though? What we know is he rebelled against God soon. 1 John 3, 8 says this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So we know that the devil wasn't created evil, for God created all things good. And Jesus said he saw him fall like lightning from heaven. And there's two Old Testament texts that have been debated about whether they're referring to Satan's fall or not. And I want to introduce you to them and encourage you on and study. The first one I want to point to is Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 16. So traditional Christianity throughout the years has had a real simplistic way they've talked about Satan and, his de- and, and the demons, It basically goes like this. Satan got proud, wanted to to be in the place of God, and therefore, therefore fell and was condemned. But no savior sent to angels, though they fell. And when Satan fell, the idea is that a third of the angels, the angelic beings, fell with Satan. But when a person looks at the text that makes us think that, the Bible seems to be describing that the fall of the, a third of, of these angelic beings was at the moment of, of the incarnation, when Christ was born a Mary. At that time they fell, which means... Satan would have fallen before that. And then we see in Genesis 6 that angels or the sons of God are described as leaving their proper abode and somehow taking on a human-type flesh where they uh, reproduce with the daughters of men. So we would have Satan falling. Now we would have another rebellion In Genesis 11, combined with Deuteronomy 32, when Israel, or when the people rebelled against God and said, we're going to build the Tower of Babel, we're not going to spread across the earth, and God judges them, Deuteronomy 32 seems to be saying that God has put rulers, angelic rulers... As, as they were dispersed according to the sons of God. And then he says, but Israel, they are mine. They're my heritage. I'm going to be with Israel. The temple's going to be in their land. My presence is going to be with them, which then would make sense of why all the other nations have their gods. Now, Deuteronomy 32 is a debated text. Who are the sons of God, Psalm 82 seems to maybe refer to these judges being uh, unrighteous judges, and so therefore they're going to be judged. So, as we see how, if, if that's true, rather than this crisp, Satan fell, all the angels fell with him, and now, for some reason, angelic beings can't fall anymore. That's kind of how I was taught. That's how I thought. But as you read the scripture, I'm not so sure that that's the case. I think we see different rebellions, different falls, different types of rulers, different types of authorities rather than being all-encompassing, we just call them angels and demons, the Bible presents uh, a more multifaceted uh, description. But anyways, Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 16, has traditionally been prescribed to Satan. It's talking about the king of Babylon. He says, "How how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, Son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms? Now, in the context, he's definitely speaking at least about the king of Babylon, I believe. Now, some will argue that the king of Babylon is a type of Satan, that definitely his evil has uh, uh, the spirit of Satan in him. Uh, and so there's debate over how to interpret Isaiah 14. The one thing we can say is, even here, all we really know is that Satan was proud and fell, and I think we already know that. Okay, look at Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. Oh, wow, we're going slow here. <laughs> Here's what, here's what we read. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the, sig- the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, and topaz, and diamond, and beryl, and onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and and crafted in gold were your settings in your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, and you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. So the stones of fire are—that's are, how they referred to these precious stones. A lot of these stones are talked about in in Eden, being in Eden. And then he says, uh, "Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor." I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before the kings, before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become... You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more. Now, Joel Beakey says these descriptions, in his opinion, compared to the Isaiah text, are far more fitting for an angelic prince, suggesting a double reference, agreeing with Jonathan Edwards, where he considered, Jonathan Edwards considered the king of Tyre to be a type of the devil. And then Joel Beakey writes this, Satan envied man, or perhaps held man in contempt as beneath his own dignity as an angel and rebelled and sought to destroy him. And then, of course, we have Genesis 1 through 7. That could be the fall. But we need to end the sermon here. So... I'm just trying to figure out how I want to do this. Well, let's finish. I want want you to consider the question at hand. Why do we take all this time to consider who Satan is? What kind of being is? Why do we need uh, to put on the full armor of God? What we need to see is that the way we destroy the devil is with Christ. To put on the armor of God is to put on Christ. If we look at the armor, we're to put on the belt of truth. Jesus is truth. The way you destroy the devil is you destroy his lies. Jesus is the righteousness that we need, speaking of the breastplate of righteousness. He is the gospel of peace that we put our faith in so we can extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray in the spirit. But the revealed word of God wants you to know your enemy. And he wants you to be motivated to get into the word of God. To study the word of God. To hide it in your heart. To have Christ ever before you. Because you stand in your own strength, you have no chance. You stand in Christ. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and delivered us to the kingdom of his beloved son. My prayer is everyone here would know that you have no hope apart from Christ. John 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And all of us have sinned. The devil could come to every one of us and say, look at that sin. None of you can stand in righteousness. But do you know that Christ has come to die for sinners? He didn't come for the good ones. He came for the bad ones. He came for the ones saying, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. And then he shows them Christ, the perfect sacrifice. And he said, if you're plunged beneath this flood, all your guilty stains gone. He came to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Do you know Christ? If you know him, how did you come here today? Strong in the Lord or beat up? Have you forgotten the world you're living in? Father, I pray that you would take these words that were spoken. Lord, whatever's true, help us remember. Apply it to our lives. Father, I pray that we would encourage one another, rather than fight against one another, that we would encourage one another to put on the armor. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.